to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Michael Lerner and Sushmita Ghosh. Sushmita Ghosh, welcome to the New School. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael, for this opportunity. You are the past president of Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, which I have been following since 1981. It was founded by my friend and colleague, Bill Drayton, mm-hmm. to identify and support leading social entrepreneurs uh, with the goal of elevating the citizen sector to a competitive level equal to the business sector. How did you come to be involved with Ashoka, Sushmita? Um, I was really a journalist, and a friend of mine um, told me that um, because, you know, everyone knew that I really liked writing about ideas, um, that Ashoka was this organization that was um, pursuing interesting, really interesting ideas that had impact. So I really met with Ashoka thinking I would write about Ashoka. Um, this was in India in, uh, at the end of 1989, um, and uh, that was how it began. Were you born in India? Yes. Where were you born? In Calcutta. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And you had been a journalist for some time by the time you got involved with Ashoka? Indeed. I was the uh, <clears throat> executive editor of a national, it was a political magazine founded by um, the Prime Minister's daughter-in-law at that point in time, Menaka Gandhi, and I um, led that for a while, and then I did a um, whole bunch of freelancing, uh, and then I was about to actually start up my own uh, magazine for Eastern India, because North had a magazine, South had a magazine, West had a magazine, but East did not, and that, that was about the time when I got introduced to Ashoka. Tell us the trajectory trajectory of your uh, career and involvement with Ashoka? Um, started off as one of the three country representatives in India, and my uh, job, along with my other colleagues, was really to find uh, these extraordinary social entrepreneurs uh, and present them uh, for selection into the Ashoka Fellowship, uh, which supports them, as you know, with a um, stipend over a period of three years. Uh, so that they have the freedom to uh, really uh, follow uh, their ideas and make them come to fruition. Uh, then, uh, this was supposed to be about 30% of my time. That was quickly, t- that turned out to be not be a very real assessment pretty quickly. Uh, went on to um, help launch Latin America, help with European fundraising, and basically actually into the third year with Ashoka, um, proposed that we have, um, you know, start up a print magazine called Changemakers at that time, completely in print, um, and um, suggested that we do this um, out of Calcutta and that I would just go off and <laughs> do this, at which point Ashoka said, you know, we could do this within Ashoka. So that was all great fun. Ashoka has now supported about 1,800 Ashoka fellows, is that correct? Yes. Um, I mean, as the board minutes come in, it's closer to 19, but yes. And could you describe what a social entrepreneur really is? A social entrepreneur is really someone who has created a new reality um, for um, uh, impact and social change. 
uh, in the social sector, has really pioneered a systems-changing idea that has left its mark on the field uh, and definitely the region that the idea operates in. Uh, we are not talking about a new um, school building. We're talking about the invention of a whole new way uh, that education should be operating. So in the Wikipedia entry on Ashoka, it describes uh, five qualities in what it says is a very rigorous search and selection process. Mm -hmm. It talks about a new idea, creativity, entrepreneurial quality, the social impact of the idea, mm -hmm. and the ethical fiber of the candidate. Mm -hmm. Why is the ethical fiber so important? Suppose someone has a great new idea, is deeply creative, is a remarkable entrepreneur, and the uh, idea has great social impact, but does not have a strong ethical fiber. Would you take that person as a fellow? Not at all, never. Um, and in fact, the, the reason for that idea is that even if everything, all of those other criteria are driven by sort of analysis and, you know, uh, looking at everything else, if your gut tells you you don't trust this person, society does not need more people who uh, are not trustworthy, um, who uh, do not have what it takes to really uh, devote themselves wholeheartedly and honestly to what needs to be uh, done. And without that, really, nothing else matters. But if we looked at the history of social change, couldn't we look back at the history of many people who've made extraordinary contributions. Couldn't we argue that many of them are flawed human beings and that ethical fiber has not always been their strong point? I think, you know, to find a flawless human being, we would have to look at some other planet, potentially. But um, and, and what you say is, could indeed be true, but um, Ashoka has been particularly careful to figure out what are the value systems that drive um, that drive these people to do what they do? Because unless you've figured out the why you're doing this, uh, which goes beyond the impact, um, you, the 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 danger is that you may have metrics and all kinds of other stuff happening to you that um, that completely set you off track, and that doesn't really realize result in change that is beneficial for society as a whole, doesn't keep you open as a human being to keep on caring. Because caring at the heart is, is the heart of entrepreneurship. Because every entrepreneur begins as a critic and begins as a critic because that person cares. Um, care happens due to ethics, good ethics. Um, because you really, it's intolerable, absolutely intolerable that life should be unfair for this or that person or this or that segment of society or this or that reason. Um, and when you begin to feel the unfairness in a very personal way, you begin to start doing something about it. And without that, without that central sense of, um, of caring and, and wanting to fix what is unfair, you don't have the, um, you don't have the, the fountain that will allow you to replenish the stick to itiveness, you know. That, uh, that all entrepreneurs need at moments when there's no funding, at moments when there's no support, at moments when you think the whole thing's going to crash and burn. <laughs> um, if, you, if, if you survive only because you care. So this suggests that there is a, a kind of a, a transcultural uh, core set of ethics that Ashoka has identified mm -hmm. uh, that really are irrespective of the, the different cultures and milieus in which uh, Ashoka Fellows have, have uh, uh, been identified. You've mentioned uh, fairness, 
caring and a, a deep commitment to fixing what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Are there other qualities that in that search for ethical fiber you seek out? I would say uh, empathy, uh, which is different, as you know, clearly from sympathy. Being Really being able to really understand and step into the other person's um, shoes and view the world from that person's angle. Uh, this this makes for actually even beyond the ethical fiber content of the thing, this actually provides the um, background for extremely well-tuned client orientation, which is helpful at a very practical level. Because if you know and understand your client at not only an emotional level, but like you literally sit in that person's seat, you begin to understand what's going to be really useful for your client. Um, and then you begin to actually devise interventions that matter, interventions that will fly because the market's going to be ready for it. Now, the 1,800 social entrepreneurs that Ashoka has supported, mm-hmm. uh, they work both as individuals, but I understand they also work in networks. Is that mm-hmm. correct? They work as individuals, and practically none of these ideas um, can really fly without, uh, you know, uh, without some sort of an institution or some sort of a network. So, yes, that is correct. And what are the networks in which they work? They would be, um, because Ashoka doesn't really care about which field uh, the idea is coming from, Ashoka is open to a new idea in the hands of a social entrepreneur. Uh, the networks could be subject matter specific, so it could be, you know, you could have the educational networks and the health networks and, you know, the, 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 by subject matter. You could also have the networks defined by uh, entrepreneur or, uh, you know, you could uh, by people who are really looking at the policy area. You could have them defined by subject matter uh, focus as well. And normally, it's very normal for systems changing um, systems changers to really cut across a huge variety of fields. Um, and uh, in fact, that the, the more they do, the, the healthier is their change idea. And how do Ashoka fellows learn from each other? Have you created mechanisms that enable these social entrepreneurs to develop their skill sets and uh, the opportunities through uh, connecting uh, either at a regional level or internationally? Yes, um, several mechanisms. So we have everything from the simple to the sublime. (laughs) So at the simplest end of things, you have local uh, um, uh, fellowship gatherings, national fellowship gatherings, um, even global fellowship gatherings around issue areas. And there you have a few simple things like uh, we call them group access dinners. So that's very simple where you have, if it's not possible for one social entrepreneur to access a really important individual, it might be possible if you have six of them wanting to meet the same person. Uh, Another thing is problem solving uh, uh, sessions, which is like one entrepreneur presenting a problem, um, seven others helping solve it. The other is very systematic. uh, We call these orientation induction ceremonies. So we have that now in every region, where as soon as you enter the Ashoka Fellowship, we have this very um, public event, uh, typically at the um, uh, uh, facilities of some really um, uh, important business entrepreneur who has a deep commitment to social change. Uh, We had it uh, at Infosys in India, for example. We had it at Google um, uh, for the U.S. uh, uh, fellows a few months ago. And there we have uh, we have social entrepreneurs self-identifying as 
social entrepreneurs as Ashoka Fellows. And we also organize um, parallel sessions where they have um, the opportunity to meet business entrepreneurs as well as their peers. Um, at another level, we actually have um, changemakers.net, which actually opens up their solutions and takes it um, beyond the fellowship to the rest of the world and basically asks the question is, who else knows more and draws in those people. Tell us more about Changemakers. That's something you've been very involved with. I understand it started as a magazine. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes, started as a magazine, and um, indeed. And basically, we figured out that with the Internet um, arriving, it was not such a great idea to carry on doing the print product only because that took that would itself be an institution that would be huge. And moved to the Internet as publishing. And now, basically, over the last over the last two years, it is uh, really a platform that open sources um, social solutions because the question is if you could open source technology. In other words, if you could draw in draw the most creative people in, on earth to basically collaborate um, online to uh, develop interesting solutions, how can we develop a mechanism that does the same for the social sector? And it's very simple. We have online collaborative competitions where we draw the best funders in a given area to be judges for um, that area. For example, the one that's going on right now is domestic violence. And um, you have people apply from around the world. And the interesting thing is that it's, this is the only um, uh, platform on the web where everyone's entries are public. You can get to see the entry of all the other people who enter. You can get to comment on them. People can get to change them uh, until it's time for the judging to start. Um, And then finally, at the end of the competition, you have three winners who win $5,000 each. But that's not not even really the point. The real point is that they have been read by the people who have the most resources in the field. And they have been, over a three-month period, um, their work has been seen by everyone. (laughs) So people can comment and improve and refine and they have to be, they, they basically are brought together in person in what we call change summits. Uh, so we've taken 20, 24 of these social entrepreneurs, we're taking them to the School World Forum, uh, where not only will they meet each other, they will actually meet um, a lot of other investors and peers, etc. And there's a whole bunch of um, uh, other uh, uh, sort of activities that are built around this. The core of the competition, though, what launches the competition are the insights drawn from the work of Ashoka Fellows over the last 25 years. We call this a, a mosaic. It's a little grid uh, which sort of describes the barriers and the principles in any given area that, that we focused on for the competition. And it um, kind of draws out the, really the best practices around the world to set the quality standards for the competition. This is really a way of opening up Ashoka's knowledge uh, to the world, saying we know this much, but we don't know everything, and come join us. In the uh, Ashoka website, Mm -hmm. uh, one finds uh, three circles of growing size. First Mm -hmm. of all, there are individual social entrepreneurs, then Mm -hmm. there's the group entrepreneurship, and then there's infrastructure for the citizen sector. Mm -hmm. Is Changemakers part of your effort to develop infrastructure at a broader level for the citizen sector? Uh, It indeed is. And like, again, I guess this is a clear example of something that systems changing that refuses to be to sit in any one category. If you look at it at one level, we uh, because it draws really 
is beginning to draw really good innovations from another from around the world it actually is feeding into ashoka's venture program so at one level it it feeds into that first circle uh, at another level it's beginning to build community because even as people are applying for this thing they're beginning to see uh, what each other is doing and we have many examples of um ideas just that are crossing borders you know people writing right if you just go and see the discussions that are going on and the that have gone on for the old ones it's all out there in the open um you'd find lafarge china wanting to import some uh, some um, innovation created by someone else in india it's it, all kinds of transactions are going on and at the third level it is indeed infrastructure for anyone to use in any way whether it's a uh, whether it's a foundation that wants to do an RFP in a somewhat cool different way whether it's a social entrepreneur who wants to build community which is uh, an ashoka fellow actually wants to do that with us um, in india or whether it's a corporation that actually wants to get all of its employees really engaged in in having sort of hands-on experience of um on so, about social solutions and helping uh, with their expertise it can be used in many different ways so it helps all three levels uh, at a basic level it certainly is infrastructure give us an example of what your your favorite uh change makers competition so far or i don't want to ask you to make a, to choose a single favorite mm-hmm. but what is an example of of a competition that you did where you really thought we hit the sweet spot on this one right i uh, have one that i like and there are a few others emerging Uh, the one i really um, example that i love is um we did a competition on health uh we call these collaborative competitions actually just to be um uh, difficult <laughs> because the word collaborative is um opposed to the word competition uh and in that uh what happened was one of the winners uh was uh, this uh, um uh, initiative called ichopal um and this is very interesting this is one of india's largest um, actually the eastern sector in india's largest um, uh, business conglomerates uh, they have this very interesting thing which allows farmers access to world markets uh, through electronic kiosks uh, which it also uses for a whole variety of other purposes uh, it's won several awards and it's really big and it it it, it entered our competition and was was a winner and what happened is one of the mechanisms we have for a competition is that they um once the judges decide on the top 14 finalists they open it up and you know we basically say now uh, change makers community vote for the top top 3 winners because basically we by that time worked it down to the 14 best and you know any or any of those three could be really great um and when we did that with this competition we had a flood of um voters sort of voting in very strange language which we thought was spam and our webmaster said we you know we're just going to take this entry off because you're spamming this thing then we called up uh, uh this corporation it's called um ITC uh and asked them you know what's happening so they said we don't have a clue and they checked back and they found that they had actually advertised this competition on their um kiosk you know when my farmers were checking prices and this was actually indian farmers <laughs> who had been trained to check prices and therefore knew english um who were writing in from across india who were, part of, who were part of the network so How wonderful and in fact they, through the comments were feeding back to itc that oh you guys this was working and i happy that you won this but by the way you need to improve this and this 
Um, and so ICC said, we have never had such feedback from our consumers ever. <laughs> so that's that was fun. wonderful. That is so fun. what are you learning about from this extraordinary process and change makers mm-hmm. of open sourcing uh, ideas for uh, for change and as I know when I work on projects that I start thinking that it's going to be something and over time I learn what it's really about. Has there been a learning process for you and change makers about uh, how the open sourcing of uh, ideas for social change really works and where the opportunities uh, are going to be over time? Absolutely. Uh, it's been a huge learning process, and of course, it's not been a learning process. It is a learning process, and I, my guess is it always will be. Um, the I guess what we have learned so far is that you know people care about quality. So it's it's nice to say open sourcing, but people do care about quality. So our um, our major um, because people don't have time. So you know our major challenge was how do you have an open thing. That is also quality. So setting the quality standard um, in a way that was unobtrusive, honest, declared upfront and clear, um, and and sort of uh, making sure that that quality standard only improved rather than went down, you know, um, was um, was a challenge. And we found that the way to do that was to be honest, to say, and was to really, really use what Ashoka has, which is a wealth of knowledge for the last 25 years from our fellows um, around anything that we are doing, which and, our, and, and also the ability to link that knowledge in the most interesting ways. For example, if you think about how to end human trafficking, you know, one of the things is urban migration. Then you start looking at, okay, which are the fellows who are actually doing something about urban migration? And then you land up with Fabio Rosa, who's actually doing something uh, to reverse urban migration with rural electrification. Could you then, say something about him? You just mentioned him in passing. Sure. Fabio is, um, has reversed, um, has, has done this spectacular work in Brazil, where he has basically reversed um, urban migration by introducing a new kind of wiring, uh, which a uh, lower cost, much lower cost, because it replaces a, a, a higher cost metal with a lower cost metal. And um, that has resulted in um, a large ch- chunk of, of rural Brazil getting electrified, essentially, getting electrification. Um, and uh, it was a very simple intervention that Fabio just made happen. And with that electrification, that meant that people were no longer so drawn to move into cities. Exactly. It had a direct impact on, on reversing urban migration. And um, this was a key factor for, you know, urban, urban migration, key factor for human trafficking. So it, when, we, when we set, when we sort of develop what we call our mosaic that sort of begins the competition, we are able to say, like, one of the barriers is this. And one of the principles is, you know, you've got to do something about reversing urban migration, and here's how. And one, but not in 10,000 years would Fabio think of attending a conference on human trafficking and vice versa, you know. <laughs> human trafficking would never think of contacting Fabio. So it was very important for us to actually use our entire network, which spread across fields and across uh, subject matter, across geography, um, to to look at each problem and say, okay, if it comes to human trafficking, what does everyone, what can everyone do?
to solve this issue, not just those working on human trafficking. And how does this intellectual framework look like and how do we, how do we reduce this to a one-page grid that a human mind can actually take as opposed to a 64-page uh, uh, page, uh, research paper, which we don't have time for? Now, the human trafficking also obviously involves the developed countries into which people are trafficked. And mm -hmm. uh, you have uh, Ashoka Fellows, for example, in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, have some of the uh, fellows in developed countries been active in addressing uh, the problems of human trafficking at that end of the uh, spectrum? Absolutely. Derek Elliman, in fact, um, Polaris Project, uh, was our advisor for um, the uh, human trafficking competition, and uh, he certainly is right here um, in D.C. And, uh, yes, we have um, this, uh, Vital Voices is the other group working on this, and they, in fact, were the facilitators of the discussion group. So, yes, there was a lot of excitement and interest and quite good work being done here in the developed world and a lot of consciousness about this as well. So, uh, yeah, I think that whole, uh, the more the world's getting global, I think this whole business about developed and developing and, is, is, I mean, that line is blurring, uh, especially around issue areas that are just intrinsically go global and really can't be dealt with, at, um, you know, in any other way, really. You have an upcoming competition on disruptive innovations in health. Uh -huh. how, how are you framing that upcoming competition? Right. So, um, so this is a piece of the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has um, uh, has supported us to do three competitions that they actually want to source um, uh, good ideas in. So, this is the use of change makers as an alternative RFP process, essentially experimentation. RFP meaning request, uh, request for proposals. proposals. Yes. Right. Sorry, I should demystify <laughs> such terms. So um, the um, yeah, so how we're framing that really is that um, you're looking at innovations that do that that basically touch on many systems and um, and and somehow manage to make them all click, overturn and click in a way that works that makes all of them work better. Now, um, how how does that happen? How does that really so you're not looking really for a, a minor level of innovation. You're looking for a very high level of innovation in this competition. So this is going to be tough. Um, it's not going to be easy to get a large number of entries. But I think we're up for the challenge, and it's going to be interesting to actually explore. So on the web uh, entry where you describe that, mm -hmm. I then see a series of... Uh, emails where people are just beginning the conversation mm -hmm. and saying who to trust worldwide on affordable health care initiatives. Mm -hmm. uh, where else can we look for social entrepreneurs reducing health care costs? Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a kind of a conversational dimension of this, I mm -hmm. take it, even mm -hmm. before the competition uh, is uh, formally begun. Absolutely. Uh, to be honest, it's, uh, that's the piece that we are developing now, and we haven't really focused on the pre-conversation online so far. Uh, we have, that's the piece that's actually just developing of its own accord, as a matter of fact, now. Uh, and we are beginning to pay more attention to it because people seem to want it um, 
before, they seem to want it during, and, and most importantly, they want, seem to want it after. Um, so we asked, um, it's, it's a good thing that we are now talking to you, Michael, because um, this is exactly an area where we might work with you and learn from you, um, is that what is the conversation that might be useful after um, or before, and how do you, what are the most useful ways of keeping those conversations alive? What is going to be useful for those who are taking part in those conversations? Well, you know well, Sushmita, that the global data shows that the the strongest uh, uh, factor in mm-hmm. the health of a nation mm-hmm. is actually not poverty, but disparities in uh, wealth. Mm-hmm. That the greater the disparities within uh, a country, the more compromised health is for everybody in that mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. So you actually find countries with lower uh, uh, income levels uh, that are more, uh, where wealth is more equitably distributed, mm-hmm. and their health is overall better than in countries where there may be a great deal of wealth, but it's very unequally distributed. Mm-hmm. So when one thinks about disruptive innovations in health, Mm -hmm. uh, going back to that mosaic, Mm -hmm. uh, one might look at places where uh, creative approaches to reducing uh, inequities in income Mm. uh, were part of uh, the broader mosaic. I think you're absolutely right, um, um, and you know, you, 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 what you've hit on is <laughs> is an issue, which is like if you really were to get, um, were to think about any particular issue, our, our particular our sort of challenge when we did the whole mosaic idea was where do you stop drawing the links? You know, how do you sort of say, well, that is just the outermost thing to link this thing to. We just need to get at much more core. Uh, uh, at, you know, with regard to this particular area. So, uh, what you've just said is pretty core, um, but it sort of raises the question of, okay, now do we do another layer of this that is, um, because ultimately at the end of the day, everything links to everything. And how do you sort of avoid getting to that level of stratosphere, but keep it down to core? Um, it's a challenge that we are having. So, um, yeah, but, but your suggestions are great one, Michael. The other great arena related to innovations in health mm-hmm. is the whole framework of ecological health mm-hmm. and the reality, which uh, a number of us have been looking at, that mm-hmm. you can't simply ask how toxins or climate change or viruses or uh, any other specific uh, vector affects health, but mm-hmm. that all of these things are combined at a level of complexity that is almost impossible to uh, untangle. And where that has led us in the work of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is an international partnership exploring these issues, Mm -hmm. is to the conclusion that anything that uh, builds resilience or reduces stress on the human population will ultimately Mm -hmm. be beneficial to health. So it's a way of framing the health question uh, mm. by saying, look, this is more complicated than any of us can ever figure out, mm-hmm. but that strategies that reduce stress, strategies that build resilience mm. are, uh, are profoundly useful to human health. 
And again, that may be the outer circle that you're describing that is too large Mm -hmm. to think about, Mm -hmm. but it certainly is a useful frame for uh, reflecting on the problem. But is it the outer circle? Isn't it it pretty core to disruptive innovations? What do you think? Well, I do think it's it's core to uh, Mm -hmm. disruptive innovations. When Mm -hmm. I said the outer circle, I Mm -hmm. simply meant that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, like changing the distribution of wealth, Mm. Uh, it's such an enormous task that um, that proximate innovations uh, where, say, people in the community are uh, trained at a grassroots level to take care of others rather than needing to involve mm. expensive health professionals mm. uh, may be places where uh, individual social entrepreneurs can actually make a immediate direct difference. Mm. And the tasks of uh, uh, the, the great shifts in climate and toxic chemicals, while vitally important, uh, are simply at a different level of analysis. But perhaps the way Ashoka looks at this, you can look at even the largest problems. I noticed you're developing a competition on mitigating climate change as uh-huh. well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um Interesting. Very interesting, Michael. That's a great point. And um, we have just brought to mind the work of the fellow in Poland who's actually looking at a way that mothers of disabled children could actually be paid by the government, you know, um, in um, as rec- in recognition of the actual care that they offer to their children, which is an interesting way of looking at it. And setting free a resource, because the same mother would have to go out and work if um, that that didn't happen, it speaks to your point about how do you um, strategies that help sort of local care to get released in a way that hasn't been done before. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the real qualities of Ashoka that is striking is that it doesn't have a kind of uh, uh, left-wing anti-corporate bias. Mm-hmm. It it works with corporations where there are good people who are trying to improve the world. And Mm -hmm. in that regard, it really is somewhat unusual in the social change world where uh, a quite strong uh, anti-corporate perspective, I don't want to call it bias, Mm -hmm. is, uh, is very characteristic of the field. Could you say something about what was that a natural beginning point for Ashoka, or did Ashoka learn, in some sense, that working with corporations where they wanted to help was a good strategy? Mm, that's interesting. Um, as as you know, uh, you know, Bill, for many years now, Michael, the genesis of Ashoka is was really Bill's. Um, uh, insight that that entrepreneurs ex- ex- really existed in both the business sector and all other sectors for that matter, and he focused on the social sector. Um, and he his um, his further insight was that really you have the uh, business and social sectors basically uh, moving away from each other for many years because of different language, different values different levels of scale, different abilities to deliver. And then you had the Industrial Revolution and you had the um, business sector take off, and uh, but you had still had the social sector sort of catching up. 
But then came comes a period of real creativity and innovation where the social sector was essentially uh, beginning to play at the level uh, that was unheard of earlier. In you know, in Bangladesh, for example, you have the largest uh, employment provider is is Brak, uh, which is um, uh, a non-profit um, you know organization. So um, the the gradual congruence and convergence of the business and social sectors has been very central to Bill's vision for um, Ashoka uh, and for Ashoka's role in the world. And why? Not because there was a need to suddenly merge corporations with uh, non-profit entities, really, but at the heart of this was the fact that you have entrepreneurs on the business end and you have entrepreneurs at the social end. And at the, when it push comes to shove, at the end of the day, uh, entrepreneurs really recognize other entrepreneurs. And the really good entrepreneurs in the business sector really want uh, are, are focused on more than um, more than you know just the the bottom line. Uh, they want to have a significant impact on history. And you don't get to be a history maker unless you're a change maker in the best sense of the term, the most ethical sense of the term. So we've actually found very congenial um, partners in business entrepreneurs who have who have this kind of a commitment to social change and really want to engage with it and really want to be social entrepreneurs themselves, basically. So that is why Ashoka has found um, has, has found it actually very much easier, in fact, to deal with business entrepreneurs um, as partners. Don't you have an entrepreneur-to-entrepreneur program that links social and business entrepreneurs? Yes, we have um, we have such a program, um, and uh, we try to work through uh, simple things that they can do together, such as trips, where you where you basically uh, a, a group of business entrepreneurs go off and see some Ashoka Fellow projects. I would say even more than that, we have built into the Ashoka way of looking, way of seeing things, way of dealing, uh, ingrained in the Ashoka spirit is the, is the hypothesis that if you are a business entrepreneur who cares about social change, uh, you know, Ashoka will probably uh, be a good thing for you to have fun with and vice versa. Sushmita, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a book that has been very um, uh, striking to me. It's a book called Presence, Human Purpose, and the Field of the Future by Peter Senge, mm-hmm. Otto Scharmer, Joseph Jaworski, and Betty Sue Flowers. Mm-hmm. And they're associated with the Society for Organizational Learning at MIT. Mm-hmm. Have you, are you familiar with either the Society or any of those authors or the book itself? Peter Senge, yes. Yeah. And the learning questions. <laughs> yes. yes. Because one of the things that's really striking about their analysis is that when, uh, well, the first point is that they really, they address uh, their primary audience is the CEOs of, uh, of large corporations. Mm-hmm. But they are talking with CEOs who deeply understand the global crisis, mm-hmm. who continue to ask how long the current system can go on mm-hmm. uh, uh, without fundamental change mm-hmm. and how to get to fundamental change. Mm-hmm. And they then uh, uh, come to the conclusion that uh, when either in a company or in uh, 
the world of social entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. one faces a problem that one simply uh, cannot figure out how to solve, uh, mm-hmm. given the existing assumptions, mm-hmm. that there's a need to recognize uh, the impasse and, in some sense, um, uh, release oneself down into a period of holding the unknowing mm-hmm. um, in which uh, new creative solutions begin to emerge that can then be prototyped and uh, brought out as uh, new forms of creativity. Mm-hmm. And I wondered whether in Ashoka's work uh, that process of uh, recognizing when one is in, at an impasse mm-hmm. um, uh, recognizing that one can't solve it given the existing assumptions, mm-hmm. uh, going into uh, the creative silence in some sense and allowing uh, the, uh, the future uh, creative solutions to emerge. Uh, does that resonate for you with any aspect of Ashoka's work? I would I would certainly imagine that that is the case. I would only wonder whether whether any Ashoka fellow or any Ashoka staff member were sort of doing that deliberatively, but I can I guarantee that 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 one does it intuitively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um that is why a couple of in, uh, sort of there are incentive systems within Ashoka which actually actually reward failed tries as well. And um so it's not as if you know, you can have a great idea. You can you can test it and see if it doesn't work. But then there comes a time when, yeah, you know, you there, there's no funding for it because it hasn't sort of worked. Um, so that that definitely forces the creative silence, shall we say? <laughs> uh, but it's I mean, there are some inbuilt mechanisms which um, which which within the Ashoka uh, organization definitely that is definitely there. But even when you talk to fellows at fellowship gatherings or retreats. Um, this is exactly what they value more than anything else because they step back and they say, you know, I am really stuck with this. I have no idea how I'm going to solve it. What am I going to do about it? And I am just, I'm just going to take my time to think about it. And can I come visit you? And so it becomes a time for them to actually go out and reach out to peers uh, within the fellowship while trying to wrestle with what it is that they're trying to solve. Sushmita, in a real sense, you're a, I, I think of you at least as a global citizen, mm-hmm. born in India, uh, uh, your roots and your family there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you came to the United States. Uh, you've lived in the United States and, I believe, continued to uh, mm-hmm. uh, divide your time between the United States and India. Mm-hmm. Um, you have watched India go through a really extraordinary period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, could you reflect a little just on the changes you've seen in India and uh, the implications of the changes in India for uh, the future of social entrepreneurship? Sure. Um, you know, the I think the most interesting thing that at least um, I see in India is that you know it was it has always been very big. I mean, that's sort of been one of the most interesting. It's just been huge. Um, so to reduce bigness to um, simplicity uh, is, is just all has always been difficult for the world looking at India and for India itself. So what happens happened because it was big is that it was happy 
we as Indians were happy to just, you know, um, look within ourselves because it was big enough. The playing ground was big enough. And the rest of the world couldn't make sense of it because it was too big, you know. This sort of, you're getting my sort of very scientific analysis. <laughs> so, but, but the, um, but the, what, what, the turning point was when we discovered a few simple things that we could be good at. One of which, of course, was software. Um, and then, then it got to be okay. You can actually, actually, you know, you can get to run things. You are able to do things at a, you know, not just a, um, uh, backyard level but there could be there were many indians running um, corporations around the world or big um, organizations and outfits around the world which um, went into several billions and you started you started having the diaspora success and so you started india began feeling that um, here's a simple thing we can succeed at and you know what we can actually succeed not just in india because it's impossible. It's going to be impossible to fix Bihar and UP and all the infrastructure problems, you know. So the whole, suddenly the conversation changed about, you know, okay, we can succeed somewhere else, by the way. And therefore we can be an example of how India can actually succeed. Indians can actually succeed. And there was a sudden, sudden, um, um, steroidal, um, shot of, uh, self-confidence, I think, um, into, in the, in the country which is very palpable. And as soon as that, just like, I mean, this is not any different from what happens to teenagers or any human beings, you know. You suddenly decide one full, one fine day that, you know, you really can do things. And then there's no looking back, right? I mean, you fail at things, but that doesn't bother you because, you know, um, that's how it is. And I think that's the, that's the piece that's the most important spiritual and um, release that India has gone past. Uh, which which is the most exciting thing as far as I'm concerned, because that will give it the power and the energy needed to sustain uh, a many-year um, effort to really realize its potential. You used the word spiritual release there, which intrigued me and, and leads to my next question. Of mm-hmm. course, India, for many in the West, has mm-hmm. been considered the, the mother country of perhaps the most... Uh, ecumenical and uh, deepest uh, source mm-hmm. for many people of mm-hmm. uh, uh, of uh, spiritual life and spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. I wonder how this new prosperity and this new uh, engagement with the world has affected that in India. When I traveled there over the last 20 years, I found that many of the contemporaries of mine really weren't interested in the traditions of Indian spiritual life at all. I wonder whether that continues to be the case with this new uh, entrepreneurial uh, class, if you will, that has emerged in India, or whether there is a a return or some kind of seeking uh, uh, something beyond the uh, material success that is obviously coming to at least a part of the Indian uh, population? Uh, I think there are two aspects to this. One is that the next generation of entrepreneurs are um, given cable, uh, given aspiration levels that are soaring, um, given um, the changing landscape. Um, There is definite uh, erosion of some of the traditional spiritual 
um, values um, that 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 you would find in an India 25 years ago, especially in the new in the sort of the next generation. On the other hand, um, because there is more, the, India has opened up its windows and doors uh, in a strange way. It requires um, all the Indians who are beginning to look through those look through those windows and doors um, to um, to preserve their Indianness. And when they begin to look into, when we begin to look into ourselves and ask, well, what is Indianness? Then there's no escaping, um, uh, you know, the the <laughs> the very old, ancient, wise, um, spiritual civilization that we all belong to, and um, in fact, there's huge pride in it because that's what sets you apart. So, in in a strange way, the opening up has resulted in the in the reinforcing of of what makes uh, one special. Uh, what what it does for entrepreneurship, whether it's business or social, is that it really opens it up um, and says that not only can you do stuff in India, you can actually sit in India and rule the world. You can actually um, have some of the best um, ideas coming out of India, going into India. It opens up the highway for innovation in a in a way that just was not opened up before. Um, so that's that's been really powerful for the country. When you speak of that return to India's spiritual traditions as mm-hmm. part of this opening up, mm-hmm. has that been true for you personally as well? I think to a certain extent, uh, I, I really appreciated my country uh, more. Uh, I think that's probably true of anyone. I guess this is not a huge finding. When, when, especially when you live abroad, you begin to understand, okay, this is what I really loved about my country, and this is what I really like about this place, you know. Um, you, so it's, it, it tightens your appreciation uh, of your background, who you are. Um, uh, yes, definitely. That piece of it is definitely true. But I had, you know, I had a Catholic nun as my principal, who is an Ashoka fellow, by the way. She's a Roman Catholic nun, Sister Cyril. Uh, who won the highest award for um, education innovation uh, in India and um, has been awarded. I mean, the ODA has recognized the best practice for all of Asia and all of that. So I had strange childhood where um, uh, Roman Catholic Irish nun convent and um, parents who were very liberal, liberal and really not, I was not, it was not traditional Hindu for me at all. So I've been exposed very early on to a large number of um, cultures and people. My parents were all, I mean, they both met in London. One was a nurse, one was an organic chemist, and it's all just completely different and disparate. So I've been used to this. Um, so, yeah. But, but you, in general, I would say, definitely true. Mm-hmm. Did you find in yourself that, that uh, out of these many uh, experiences that any kind of... Uh, spiritual practice or spiritual perspective was part of what sustains you on an ongoing basis, or is your vision a uh, completely secular one? Um, I, I guess uh, I guess I would answer your question by saying that I have just defined my, for myself what is spiritual. <laughs> you know what i would call spiritual and i guess what i would call spiritual is um is 
my ability to look at myself in the mirror and every night and and be able to say that I did the best I could in a way that uh, would I would be proud of should I be standing in front of whichever um, higher power um, you want to name for that minute. Um, and also what I would call spiritual is um, what I've learned from you know, I, I have um, read a little bit of. Uh, I haven't. I have do not have the the power to read the Sanskrit version at all, but I have read a little bit of the Gita and I have read a little bit of um, our texts, and um, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by the fact that um, of, of some of the learnings that emerge from it, and I'm quite driven by it actually. But it, it those learnings are really extraordinarily secular. They're extraordinarily open to all the other learnings. So I don't know, I don't think I have a neat way of saying either or. Uh, It sits somewhere in between, I guess. Mm -hmm. When you look at the future of the citizen sector and you look at the future of Ashoka and changemakers, Ashoka seems, at least to me, to have played a, a really critical role widely regarded as critical in the media and among uh, social theorists Mm -hmm. in developing the concept of the social entrepreneur and the key role of the social entrepreneur in the whole citizen sector. Um, I know Bill Drayton has, has long been someone who thinks at great depth about where this field is going. Mm What conclusions have you reached about what the next stage is for Ashoka, for Changemakers, and its support of the citizen sector, and what we need to accomplish in the citizen sector over the next decade? I guess the next stage is really um, two things. One is that um, if 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 uh, Bill's wonderful contribution to this field has been those you know those two words, social entrepreneur. Um, what's what's happening right now is is you have the um, business entrepreneur and social entrepreneur worlds, worlds merging for um, around the uh, ambitions or the aspirations of individuals who really are focused on systemic social change. Um, so it's soon going to not matter very much whether you're on the business side of things or the social side of things, as long as you meet sort of the Ashoka criteria of having a new systems-changing idea, uh, which is going to have social impact. So I think we are at a stage where those worlds have merged, as a matter of fact. And so it becomes a matter of figuring out, if those worlds have merged, what is it that we are now going to do in terms of uh, accommodating um, the, the the congruence, um, the new con- the, well, you know, the established congruence of those two worlds. That's sort of one level. At another level, I know that Bill is extremely excited about, um, you know, seeding entrepreneurship early, which is why that, that you know, uh, unless you are able to do things and able to tell yourself that you can do things pretty early on in life, it usually doesn't sprout um, at the very, you know, towards the, uh, once you've gone past the age of uh, maybe 20 um, and so it's so seeding entrepreneurship early by by helping many more young people um, develop the habit of making change 
could be an interesting thing to do. I think at a third level, um, Ashoka has learned so much because of the work of its fellows and continues to learn so much because of the world of its uh, work of its fellows um, that we sort of um, are quite naturally positioned to be um, a place which kind of says that, look, this is what we've learned through the work of our fellows. Um, what, how can we add to this? What can we improve? How can we, you know, what else is there to know here? And sort of be, be the magnetic force around which uh, you have uh, the knowledge develop field by field. And as you know, that's, that's sort of what um, Changemakers is focused on. Um, because, you know, at no given point in time is any organization or any individual or any network being a- going to be able to say that I have successfully solved human trafficking. On the other hand, what you can say is we have successfully put together a very dynamic, real-time um, capacity to continually outthink the problem. Uh, and I think Ashoka is well-positioned to outthink problems based on the knowledge base that it has now. Sushmita Ghosh, thank you very much for being with us in this New School Conversation. Thank you so much, Michael. (laughs) Great fun. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live telephone audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at thenewschool.com at commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all New School conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Thank you for joining us.